Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Ali, how are you doing this week? I'm doing absolutely marvellous, thank you very much for asking. Um, as you know, we went to a comedy show last night, <laughs> which yeah. featured uh, David Mitchell, Lee Mack, and Rob Brydon from What I Lie to You. And that was just like an incredible experience, so I'm still on a high from that. Um, I don't know how you found it. Yeah, that was sick. Those guys are just incredible. I mean, they even if they were just chatting and not telling jokes, I would have watched it because I just love those guys and want to hang out with them. So, yeah. no, it was just incredible. Um, one thing that that was was interesting is that I really wanted to do the whole standing ovation thing at the end, but I was really sort of acutely worried that I don't want to be the first person in this downstairs bit to stand up. Oh, really? And I was kind of annoyed at myself all on the car journey home <laughs> for <laughs> for not standing up and doing the clapping thing because. Just like in general, if I enjoy something, I like to just kind of stand up and clap because it doesn't cost me anything. It makes me feel better about the event because I'm like, you know, actively showing my appreciation. I know that it makes the people on stage feel better when people are standing up in the audience. And it also has that potential sort of, oh, uh, what's it called? Where like one person stands up and then everyone else yeah, realizes yeah, that yeah. it's okay and then and then does yeah. it, which is just generally positive vibes all yeah. around. Yeah. And so I was really annoyed at myself that <laughs> I didn't do it based on just the social the social <laughs> disapproval, but it wouldn't even have been social yeah. disapproval. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was also thinking of doing that and then I didn't because no one else was doing it. <laughs> and then I did think like, I like okay, I, I thought about it. <laughs> there were a lot of thoughts that went on <laughs> yeah. while I was clapping, yeah. right? The first thought was like, why is no one standing up? That yeah. was sick. We should stand up and clap. Then the second thought was like, hmm, am I not doing it because of like the social uh, awkwardness yeah. of it? And then I thought, no, that's that's actually not the reason. I just thought that maybe that maybe in like a comedy thing, that's just not the uh, the etiquette or whatever. So I thought that, and then and then I looked around in the upstairs. Oh, bit, there were and people. I, I saw a, a smattering of people standing oh, up. Oh, damn. Okay. But like there was no one in our section. So. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm yeah. kind of disappointed in myself as well. Yeah, same. I think action point is a, like, like I find that any time in my life where I have these moments where I know I want to do something and I let the fear of social disapproval stop me from doing it, then I think, okay, this is something is seriously wrong here. Yeah. yeah. And it's like a big kind of red mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh, mate, I had one, I had one like not, less than a week ago. I was in a co in a coffee shop, right? It was a cafe Nero in St. Albans. Yeah. And I got up to go to the toilet and there's only one toilet. And one of the sort of staff at the, from the coffee shop also got up to go to the toilet. And so outside there was this like awkward, like, you know, oh, you go, no, you go, whatever. Um, and she ended up letting me go first. Yeah. Um, and then when I came out, I thought, okay, the polite thing to do would be to like, go up to her and say, hey, I'm, I'm done with the toilet or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and then I thought, wait, no, that might be weird. Like, you know, and I had deliberated over this, even even though like the natural and normal thing to do would be to be like, hey, the, the toilet's free. Yeah, <laughs> it actually would. But I sort of thought about it. I was like, oh no, that might be weird or something. And then I did do it. <laughs> Why do you think that might be weird? Well, I don't know. As in just because it was a toilet thing? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Like she was behind the counter, like with like the other baristas and stuff. Yeah. But I'd have to like go there and say, "Hey, 
hey, sorry, you. Yeah, not not you. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, the toilet's free. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, that that sort of ate away at me for for a while. <laughs> so I think like this uh, kind of as a general heuristic. Anytime we think, oh, this might be weird. I don't want to do it. In in general, we should we should, we should probably just do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I have these moments pretty regularly. I always think, oh, yeah, like, why did I even, why did I ever think that? Uh, cool. I guess we'd better do a podcast. <laughs> right. What is our topic this week, Ali? We are trying out a new format this week. This is going to excite you, I hope. Um, oh, we? we are trying out, we're, we're, we're trying out a new format. And in this format, basically, I've got several hundred books on my Kindle with lots of highlights on them that I've read over the last, like, 10 years. And so I think every now and then it would be good to do a podcast episode where we pick a book and resurface the highlights from that and i kind of read out a highlight and you we kind of discuss oh okay kind of like a book discussion a book club similar nice you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so today we're doing a book written in 1959 called the magic of thinking big okay i'm, I'm surprised you're so up for this i would have expected like oh <laughs> that sounds like such a bad title why would you pick that book <laughs> It's The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. And this is a book that's basically all about how self-belief leads to good results. Oh, there we go. (laughs) You've got the reaction. Well done. (laughs) Um, And it's quite quite an old book. So people like Tim Ferriss and and sort of his generation of people say that this book changed their life, along with books like Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And, you know, (laughs) there we go. Um, And so... We actually had a question along these lines for our Q&A video, which you didn't take kindly to. Someone asked that, you know, if I believe I can do it, will I succeed? Or words to that effect. And you really didn't like didn't like that at all. So can we just start with you giving like a, a summary of why you don't like this general general attitude? I'm actually completely on board with the general attitude. I, I very strongly believe that self-belief is, you know, a large part of what matters in, in, in life and stuff. <laughs> so I have nothing against the attitude. It's just, you know, it just comes back to the self-help life advice thing that doesn't sit well with me. That's the only thing. But let's talk about the book. Okay, cool. Um, so I've just got a list of my highlights. So these are the things, I think I first read this about four years ago. <laughs> and these are the highlights from then. So I actually can't remember what I highlighted. But let's just go through an order and, and talk about it. So the first one I've got is chapter one, believe you can succeed and you will. You know, fair enough. I guess you, you have highlighted to- that. No. Oh, it's, okay. It's, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the highlight is from chapter one. Oh, got it. Um, and I... <laughs> Uh, just for the record, chapter number three is called Build Confidence and Destroy Fear. Number five, how to think and dream creatively. Number eight, make your attitudes your allies. Yeah, you know. sorry, I, I didn't realize you were reading out the chapter names. I thought that was the high, I thought the next one was going to be like, contents, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. acknowledgements. <laughs> anyway, highlight number one, the okay, I'll try it, but I don't think it will work attitude produces failures. I'll try it, but I don't think it'll work. Mm. Mm. I'm not sure I fully agree with this, actually. I'll try it, but I don't think it'll work. I think there's a balance here between sort of setting ourselves up, up for, for failure at the start versus just having low expectations. Mm. I'm a big proponent of having low expectations. Yeah, yeah. But sort of still putting all of our effort into stuff. Yeah. I mean, so what's the context of this thing? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> uh, over the years, I've talked with many people who have failed in business ventures and in various careers. I've heard lots of reasons and excuses for failure. Something especially significant unfolds as conversations with failures develop. In a casual sort of way, the failure drops a remark like, to tell the truth, I didn't think it would work. Or, I had my misgivings before I even started out. Or, actually, I wasn't too surprised that it didn't work out. 
And then he says, okay, uh, the, okay, I'll try it, but I don't think it will work attitude produces failures. Oh. Disbelief is negative power. When the mind disbelieves or doubts, the mind attracts reasons to support the disbelief. Doubt, disbelief, the, sub- the, subconscious, will fa- the subconscious will to fail, the not really wanting to succeed is responsible for most failures. I think it's like a, I've sort of seen this as like a hedging strategy of like, who oh, I want to do this thing, but I don't want to like be vulnerable and sort of be vulnerable if it goes badly. And so I'm going to you know, play it cool and be like, oh yeah, I didn't think it was going to work anyway. Or like, oh yeah, I didn't want that thing anyway. You know, that kind of thing. Is that sort of what this is getting at? I, th- I think so. I think, I, I think it kind of harks back to, you know, the classic fear of looking foolish. Um, I was actually reading this thing like yesterday, which was all about kind of getting started on YouTube or, you know, so, some, something along those lines. And the quote in that was that the main reason we don't, do stuff is because we're worried about what others will think or, or because we don't want to look bad in, in, in doing the stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think this is kind of what that's talking about. Right, let's move on. Uh, next highlight. How to develop the power of belief. That's the, the heading of this particular bit for ah, a bit of context. Got it, got it. Um, think success, don't think failure. At work, in your home, substitute success thinking for failure thinking. When you face a difficult situation, think I'll win, not I'll probably lose. When you compete with someone else, think I'm equal to the best, not I'm outclassed. When opportunity appears... I can do it. Never, I can't. Let the, let the master thought, I will succeed, dominate your thinking process. Thinking success conditions your mind to recreate plans that produce success. Thinking failure does the exact opposite. Failure thinking conditions the mind to think other thoughts that produce failure. I think I experienced this a lot growing up because we used to play badminton, right? Yeah. And you were always a little bit better than me. Mm. And the thing is, the thing is, right, <clears throat> you, were, like, you weren't actually... <laughs> You weren't actually better than me. We were, we were basically the same. It's just that you had the whole older brother thing going. And like, <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you had like a slight edge, but like, it was really not as... No- okay, you might have been like 5% better than me or something. Sure, yeah. But according to the scores, you were like, you know, 50% better than yeah. me, you know? And it's because, yeah, it's because of this thing. Like, if, if I went into a badminton game thinking, oh, Ali's going to beat me again. Like, if I just, like, lost you three times in a row or something, mm. and we're playing again, I'm obviously not going to win. Like, you know, you can put money on that. Whereas if it's, like, a fresh game of the day or whatever, and, like, I don't have the negative Ali is better than me uh, mindset, then I have, you know, there's, like, a 50-50 chance of winning. Because, like I said, we were yeah, actually we're very even evenly, evenly matched. matched. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think definitely in, in those kinds of domains... It, it's, it, it does make a big difference. Definitely. And I've recently started playing tennis again. And I found that like when we do our practice bits, I'm, I'm whacking forehand, backhand rallies down the court, like playing, playing like a proper pro, topspin, everything. And then when it comes to an actual match, when I play a shot, I, I, you know, it's just that fear of what if the ball goes out, what if the ball hits the net, that yeah, really yeah, just yeah. completely shafts me 100%. Um, and one of the people I was playing with, he's like a an intensive care consultant who just happens to play tennis with us. He was like, look, man, why can't you just play these shots in, in real life? I was like, cause I'm worried about the score. <laughs> and when I said that, I was like, damn, you know, this, this is such a good life lesson here. <laughs> you shouldn't be worried about the score. You should just give it your best shots. Oh, there we go. <laughs> nice. Very good. David Schwartz. <laughs> I'll edit your next book. I think also, also on this note, this is something that I've really internalized to, to, to a degree in that whenever I try something or think about trying something, the first thought is just, yeah, I can do it. How hard can it be? And yeah. when I sort of just kind of casually mentioned this, like I think one time, like our friend Catherine asked that, oh, isn't that going to be hard? And, I, and it, it, that thought just didn't even cross my mind. Yeah. It was almost like, a, oh, well, no, it'll be, uh, how, how hard can it be? Yeah. I think, that, I think that kind of confidence comes from like just 
doing new things before and like knowing uh, knowing that the process of doing new things is not insane so like i think one of the nice things about doing a maths degree and i don't know maybe you'll feel this way about medicine is that when it comes to having to understand anything my immediate thing is like you know that's that's fine i have no doubts as to whether i'll be able to get my head around whatever thing i'm reading about or looking into you know and i think sort of doing enough of that in maths kind of gave me that that confidence outside of maths and in lots of other things and then i think also when it comes to learning new things i think the fact that i spent most of my teenage years just like learning random stuff like graphic design and coding all this kind of stuff once you've done that a bunch of times then it's 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 really just like yeah you can basically learn anything and yeah 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 that's very true like i found that when i was in first year of uni i kind of had in the back of my mind that oh i don't know if i'll be able to do this and that completely shafted me like for the first several months of of term where i would I, I i sort of had this implicit belief like you know we we, we had these sort of semi mathsy kind of papers where you'd had to do various concentration calculations and look at graphs and right. figure out stuff vision uh, exactly um but and my friends like callum and paul and stuff used to sort of really dominate those and just do really well in them and i sort of there was a part of me that was thinking oh wow these guys are just cleverer than i am yeah, yeah. and i as soon as that belief started then i start I, I, I started finding those particular problems really really hard yeah and it was only towards the end of the year where i was like actually you know this is not that hard at all and then in, in like second year I, I sort of realized that actually there's no difference in intelligence between me and my friends it's just you know the amount of time we put into understanding stuff yeah yeah exactly um so that's one thing that i really try and actively endorse to because, uh, you know, I usually get messages from new medical students who are over glamorizing. Oh, my God, medicine is the hardest thing in the world, mm. uh, which you're very familiar with. <laughs> and yes. I just try and tell them, look, look, don't glamorize it. It's not that hard. And if you think of it as it's going to be hard, it's just going to make everything a lot harder. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, next one. So chapter three is called Build Confidence and Destroy Fear. Uh, <laughs> and I've, re- I've highlighted this. Jot that down in your success rule book right now. Action cures fear. Okay. I think that's fairly self-explanatory. Oh, I love this one. So this is one that I actually wrote about in my email newsletter like a year ago. Um, it's under the subtitle of how to become more confident or something along those lines. And when I read this, I was like, damn, this is so true. This is sort of like goes back to our standing ovation example. Number four, practice speaking up. In working with many kinds of groups of all sizes, I've watched many persons with keen perception and much native ability freeze and fail to participate in discussions. It isn't that these folks don't want to get in and wade with the rest. Rather, it's a simple lack of confidence. The conference clam thinks to himself, my opinion is probably worthless. If I say something, I'll probably look foolish. I'll just say nothing. Besides, the others in the group probably know know more than I. I don't want the others to know how ignorant I am. Each time the conference clam fails to speak, he feels even more inadequate, more inferior. Often he makes a faint promise to himself that deep down he knows he won't keep to speak next time. This is very important. Each time our clam fails to speak, he takes one more dose of confidence poison. He becomes less and less confident of himself or herself. But on the positive side, the more you speak up, the more you add to your confidence and the easier it is to speak up the next time. Speak up. It's a confidence building vitamin. Love it. Damn. That's like really good stuff. This is just like, I think this is kind of my, like my favorite part of this whole book because I was very much conference clam in sort of approaching the end of secondary school. Right. Um, and then I think I've, I've told you this after I had this sort of a conversation with our headmaster where he was like, you yeah. know, you want to apply to medicine, you're a bit robotic, you need to sort your life out type, yeah. type thing in like a nice way. Then I decided, to, he, actually, I, I, I think it was him who, who gave the advice, that, you know, just make it a point to ask a question in every everything you do. Mm. And now I've that's like so deeply ingrained that anytime we have like a teaching session or something at work, 
you know, the, 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 the person giving the lecture puts out a question out there and I just know that I'm going to be the one to respond because no one else is going to do it. And, even, yeah. and sometimes they even wait for like five, 10 seconds and it gets really, really awkward. And I always think, why is no one, is, is, why is no one responding? Yeah. And I think kind of the, the more that this, the more that we do this, the more it builds up the ability to do it. And then to the point where it just feels completely natural shouting out an answer in front of 300 people in a lecture theater. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that one. That was pretty good. All right, chapter number five, how to, how to think and dream creatively. When you believe something is impossible, your mind goes to work for you to prove why. But when you believe, really believe something can be done, your mind goes to work for you and helps you find the ways to do it. Have you ever had that? When you believe, hmm. I feel like the book is really just harking on the same thing now. How far are we into it? Um, not very far. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Capacity is a state of mind. How much we can do depends on how much we think we can do. When you really believe you can do more, your mind thinks creatively and shows you the way. I'm not sure why I highlighted all these like four years ago. Clearly, this was, <laughs> this was news to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that one's actually really good. And the, the capacity thing is something I've been thinking about recently because I've always felt that like the biggest constraint... Okay, I, I don't want to make a stronger statement than I actually believe. So I'm going to backtrack a bit. But I, I often think a big constraint is, <laughs> <laughs> is, is sort of the, it's not like the amount of hours in the day or like how good you are at whatever. It's like, it's what, what you think the benchmarks for this thing are. And so there's a, there's a very good uh, piece by Malcolm Gladwell uh, in the New Yorker from a, a bunch of years ago talking about a guy called Roger Bannister. Do you know who Roger Bannister is? Oh, the old four minute mile. Yeah, Roger Bannister is the first guy to, uh, guy or girl, to have run a mile in four minutes. Uh, and he actually set this record at, uh, at Ifley uh, in Oxford. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and before, you know, before Roger Bannister managed to run this four minute mile, people thought it was impossible. People thought this was like a superhuman thing. Like no one can possibly run that fast for that long to get a mile in four minutes. Uh, and then... Pretty soon after he managed to do it, loads of other people just started doing it. And now running a four minute mile is not, it's not that impressive. Like if you're into running or long distance, whatever, like it's it, fine. It's, it's impressive, but it's not like, it's not even remotely superhuman, you know, like kids in high school can do it if they're good at running. And I think that is, yeah, I, I think that's just like a really good example of how sort of the benchmarks that we have internally actually affect how we do it things. Um, and so I, I always kind of felt like school could probably be done in a lot less time uh, for a lot of kids, you know, like half the time, a quarter of the time. Like so you, don't need, you don't need to spend that long in, uh, in a lesson and, and all that kind of stuff. But because the benchmark is like, oh, I have to like learn this thing over this period of time, then you, you kind of like, I don't know if hold yourself back is, is, is the right word, but you sort of have these... Do you remember in Naruto when <laughs> Here we go. when when Lee, yeah, Rock Lee, yeah. he has these like ankle weights on him at all, at all times. Yeah. He ba he he basically, basically in Naruto's like about ninjas and stuff and they're fighting. Uh, and Lee is one of like the the guys in it. Um and he he always wears weights on his ankles and his wrists so that when he's training and when he's fighting and stuff, it's almost like a restraint or something that like he's he's always fighting with these restraints on. And then there's this one really epic moment. He basically never takes these things off. He's fighting against like a really strong guy, Gara. Uh, and, it, and at this point he's like, okay, this guy's literally gonna kill me if I keep fighting with these restraints on. And then he like drops his ankle weights and his wrist weights. And then he's like absolutely sick. He's like super fast, super strong, all this kind of stuff. And I feel like, I feel like the ankle weights are a good metaphor for like, you know, just like the, the, the invisible benchmarks that other people sort of set for us. The invisible shackles almost. The invisible, yeah. The, <laughs> the invisible sort of, weights. Yeah. yeah, the invisible shackles. And so like, 
The fact that no one had run a four-minute mile was like an- ankle weights on everyone who was who tried to run four-minute miles because it was like, you know, no one's done this before. This is really hard. And then suddenly one person does it. It's like, this is achievable. We can, you know, anyone can do this. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'd just like to read, actually, the, the Malcolm Gladwell thing. I think it's really good. Let me let me find the excerpt. Sure. And, uh, Go for it. <clears throat> ah, it's called The Ordinary Greatness of Roger Bannister. All right, let me find the uh, the crucial patch. passage ah running was his hobby this is about roger bannister he barely pursued it past his graduation because presumably he had better things to do with his time the claim that typically accompanies a feat of athletic genius that it may never be equaled was never said of bannister's four minute mile the point of his race was exactly the opposite the four minute barrier had daunted runners for generations but bannister intended to break through it so that others might follow and they did and there have been thousands of Four minute miles recorded since Bannister's run, and today high school kids routinely run them. Uh, and uh, Malcolm ends ends the piece saying, uh, "He says you can't hit a Roger Fer- a Roger Federer forehand once. You can't even approximate it. It is forever out of reach. But most of us, at some point in our in our lives, can for a few fleeting moments propel ourselves forward at Roger Bannister's pace. In the grey days of 1950s Britain." The act of making the unattainable attainable was considered a greater accomplishment than achieving the impossible. It still should be. And so I think that's like, yeah, big testament to, I can't remember exactly what the, what the passage said that you read out from, from the book, but yeah. Nice. All right. So chapter number eight is called Make Your Attitudes Your Allies. And this, I think, is some, some kind of, he's, he's clearly referencing our podcast episode where we talk about complaining. Um, he says... To get enthusiastic, learn more about the thing you are not enthusiastic about, as 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 a first point. Um, and I think I highlighted that because this is what Mimi always says. She's like, "Look, you know, um, when you when you work for something, then you'll develop an interest in it." Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Which is very true. Uh, next highlight: transmit good news to your family. Tell them the good that happened today. Recall the amusing, pleasant things you experienced, and let the unpleasant things stay buried. Spread good news. It's pointless to pass on the bad. It only makes your family worry, makes them nervous. Bring home some sunlight every day. That's nice. Do you do that? Uh, I think so. I'm trying. I'm trying to do it more often. Okay. <laughs> we can talk about that another time. <laughs> All right. Next, we've got make this little test regularly to keep you on the right track. Whenever you leave a person, ask yourself, does that person honestly feel better because he has talked with me? This self-training device works. Apply it when talking with employees, associates, your family, customers, even with a casual acquaintance. I think that's really true. Um, there was an experience I had, I, th- I think I talked about this a few months ago, but whatever, uh, where I was in A&E, which is the emergency department for our American audience. And uh, it's it's quite long shifts when we work in A&E. Um, and I sat down by the computer and I sat next to this guy who I vaguely knew. I was like, hey, how's it going? Uh, just as a like, you know, standard question. He was like, oh, absolutely fantastic. How are you? Yeah. And I was just like, whoa. Like, <laughs> you know, like no one replies with how are you doing with absolutely fantastically. Um, and I commented this to him and he was like, oh, well, you know, I'm just spreading positive vibes. If I enjoy my work, then I'm, you know, if, or, or he, he said something like, if I, if I, if I actively act like I'm enjoying my work, then I will, I will just enjoy my work. Yeah. Um, and that is, that sort of reminded me of all of the like charisma books that all say that if someone asks you how you're doing, just like be really effusive in your enthusiasm with your response. Um, and I think that's a very easy way to do this thing of leaving others better than you found them. Yeah, that's nice. It's kind of like the thing, the I don't know, some research or whatever, I don't know how legit it was, about like how smiling actually makes you happier rather than... Yeah. It's not just it's not just that being happy makes you smile, but smiling actually makes you happier. That's just true. I think Daniel Gilbert talks about this in Stumbling on Happiness, which is going to be another book that we oh. <laughs> talk about in a few weeks' time. Anyway, um, 
Oh, here we go. Here's a daily exercise that pays off surprisingly well. Ask yourself every day, what can I do today to make my partner and family happy? <laughs> okay, I need to take more notes about this book. <laughs> How, wait, wait, wait. This see, it seems like he's gone off the main thing of like dream big kind of thing. But he's just talking about like being nice now, isn't he? Um, What's his deal? So I think this chapter is about uh, inspiring people with your attitudes. Oh, okay. And sort of making other people feel important. I think it's in, the, it's in the context of being like a salesman or something like that. And he's kind of training these salesman people. And, oh, yeah, he's training these salesman people. And he tells them, because they're all like, you know, salesmen in 1950s America. Um, and he orders in some flowers for them. And he says, take these flowers home to your wife and just say, you know, it's a gift. And the next day, uh, they all say that, yeah, the wives are really happy. And it just made their own day better. And it made yeah. the sales performance improve and all this kind of stuff. Oh, nice. Um, I think that was where that particular thing came from. Okay, chapter number nine, think right towards people. Success depends on the support of other people. Yep, fine. Um, oh, okay. So now he's talking about research that he's done or interviews that he's, he's conducted about people who get promotions and jobs. Uh, and he says, in at least nine out of 10 cases, the likability factor is the first thing that people mentioned when they talk about giving someone a promotion. And in an overwhelmingly large number of cases, the likability factor is given far more weight than the technical factor, hmm. which I think we can all probably relate to. Okay, here's an interesting one. Almost without exception, the more successful the person, the more he practices conversation generosity. That is, he encourages the other person to talk about himself, his views, his accomplishments, his family, his job, his problems. Conversation generosity paves the way to greater success in two important ways. Firstly, conversation generosity wins friends. And secondly, conversation generosity helps you learn more about other people. So this is interesting because it's sort of like in Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, he says that in order to be interesting, all you have to do is be interested yeah. that you just ask people a series of questions about themselves. Like sort of obviously not in a robotic way and stuff, just like in a nice way, but seems to imply that, yeah, you know, people love to talk about themselves. The more you ask them about themselves, the more they will, you know, think you're a nice guy. Yeah. But then there's the other side of the coin, which is that there are like, you know, like I imagine if you were to meet someone and they were to just ask you questions about yourself, I don't think you'd gain a lot from that interaction. You wouldn't find it particularly valuable. Um, I don't know. It depends on the questions and things. And I, I think one, one, I can't remember where I heard this, but I think it's a good like framework for thinking about your role in a conversation. I think like a good, you know, if, if it's your turn to like ask the questions in a conversation, then your job is almost to like be an editor for the other person's thoughts. Because like they're, they're presumably talking about things that they probably haven't, you know, cemented or written down anywhere. Like they're, they're, they're thinking of this stuff as they're going along. Mm. And it's your job to like ask the right questions to let them figure out their story and let you figure out their story. And so like thinking of it as like being an editor uh, is I think a really good framework for that. However, I think like, yeah, certainly in, 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 in the conversations I enjoy, I think I, in general, I don't like talking about myself too much. And if someone, if someone is, Hmm. Have I ever encountered someone who goes into question? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I so I, I yeah, I, I I don't think I'd let my me talking about myself like be the main thing. You know, it'll be like fifty fifty at most mm. or whatever. Even if the other person's really pushing for it, um, I think there are plenty of conversations where the other person does most of the talking, and I'm generally fine with that. I think that's more interesting. Um, but there, there there are also conversations where I think like if. Yeah, I, I don't know what, I'm not going to try and generalize what kind of people do this, but with some people, it seems like they are also aware of the conversational balance. And if it's too much of like them talking, then they'll, you know, they'll make a point to say like, 
oh, you know, we've talked about me for ages. Like, well, mm. yeah, what about you? Like, what, what do you think about this thing? So I think that that's always interesting when like um, almost you you're both playing the yep. good conversation game, uh, sort of actively, and and I think those are quite nice. Yeah, I I don't talk with many people who have that sort of act actively have that because like in most yeah. of the conversations I have um, with so sort of people at work and stuff, I it it, it tends to be them, them doing most of the talking. Um, and the nice thing that, and the, th and the thing I really like about medicine is that it creates this low social optionality environment every few weeks to months where you switch placements and you're with an entirely new group of people that you're going to be with for four months. And yeah. therefore it is in your best interest to connect. Yep. Um, and there's this um, other F2, so same year doctor as me, who we, 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 we often just end up working in the doctor's office. And the conversations between us tends to be me trying to find out stuff about her. Right, <laughs> if okay, yeah. Her. yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, and... I sometimes think that she's doing all the talking and I sometimes have in the back of my mind that I wonder whether she realizes that she's doing most of the talking because I don't mind it. I think it's great. I'm sort of trying to yeah. you know, connect with my fellow man and understand the human condition from, from the perspective of someone else. Yeah. So I really like hearing things from her perspective, but she almost never asks me anything about me. And I'm like, oh, I, I wonder if this is like, yeah. Whereas I think if she were more actively thinking about the conversational dynamic, she, it, it would be less kind of one-sided. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really like your point about being an editor because that's definitely what I kind of I think I've been subconsciously doing. Yeah. And that someone will kind of s phrase their ideas and then I will s sort of, okay, so what it sounds like what you're saying is da 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is a common tactic when, when when talking to patients and families and stuff as well. Like you, you would say, okay, so what I'm hearing is yeah. blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, so it sounds like this must have been blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah. And they feel really hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of validate what they're saying. Yeah. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Remember this, the average person would, would rather talk about himself than anything else in the world. When you give him the chance, he likes you for it. <laughs> Conversation generosity is the easiest, simplest and surest way there is to win a friend. The oh. No, no, the thing is though, just as a final point on yeah. this topic, <laughs> I think as this advice becomes more mainstream and it is becoming more mainstream, like lots of people have read Dale Carnegie's yeah. book. Lots of people are reading things like this. And I remember it was our, our friend from school, James. He, he, he said something, <laughs> what was it exactly? You, you tell it. <laughs> so he, so... He was talking to like one of my random, okay. So our friend James was talking to another random girl. Let's call her Jane. And I knew Jane from university. And he was saying, he, 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 he was telling me about his interaction with Jane. And he, he was saying to me that she was just asking me too many questions, man. Like I'd say something and she would ask a follow-up question. Like I'm the one who's supposed to be asking the questions. <laughs> And I, I, yeah. could, I could so relate because yeah. Jane does this thing where she asks you questions about yourself. And when you're so used to operating on autopilot where you're just trying to find out more about the other person, it's very jarring to suddenly be asked questions yeah. about yourself <laughs> as if someone actually cares. Yeah, me? And, <laughs> and, and then like for me, there's a kind of, there's a kind of dynamic there whereas I kind of, like if, if they ask, if they look to, if they ask too many follow-up questions in a way that seems not quite sincere, I just kind of have this kind of alarm in my head that maybe they're just asking for the sake of it. Mm. Whereas I feel like I can sort of tell that, you know, for example, if a 21 year old wannabe YouTuber comes up to me and asks me questions, I, I know they're genuinely interested in the things I'm going to have to say. Right. Whereas if someone who is at my level is sort of in medicine is asking questions from like, oh, okay, uh, how about that? And oh, okay, how did you get started? With, with the inflection uh, at the yeah, end of it, yeah. then I'm, I, I kind of feel like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's, if that's being unfair, but. All right, next thing. Oh, that's interesting. I've had some disappointments, times where I greatly wanted a promotion and somebody else got it. But I never figured that I was the victim of office politics or prejudice or bad judgment on the boss's part. Instead of sulking or quitting in a huff, I reasoned things out. 
Obviously, the other fellow deserved the promotion more than I did. What could I do to make myself deserving for the next opportunity? At the same time, I never got angry with myself for losing and never wasted any time berating myself. Remember Benjamin Fairless when things go wrong. Just do two things. Number one, ask yourself, what can I do to make myself more deserving of the next opportunity? Number two, don't waste time and energy being discouraged. Don't berate yourself. Plan to win next time. So yeah, standard advice of reframe failure is learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, Let's try and find one more really good one to end. Okay, I think this one's interesting. It's, it's in chapter number 10, which is towards the end of the book, called Get the Action Habit. Uh, and the highlight is as follows. Here are two things to do to help you avoid the costly mistake of waiting until, until conditions are perfect before you act. Number one, expect future obstacles and difficulties. Every venture presents risks, problems, and uncertainties. Let's suppose you wanted to drive your car from Chicago to LA, but you insisted on waiting until you had absolute assurance there would be no detours, no motor trouble, no bad weather, no drunken drivers, no risk of any kind. When would you start? Never. In planning your trip to LA, it makes sense to map your route, check your car in other ways to eliminate as much risk as possible before you start, but you can't eliminate all the risks. And number two, meet problems and obstacles as they arise. The test of a successful person is not the ability to eliminate all problems before he takes action, but rather the ability to find solutions to difficulties when he encounters them in business, marriage, or in any activity, cross bridges when you come to them. I thought this was interesting because I think this is the old um, sort of the paralysis that comes from planning too much. Mm. And I wonder how you, given that you're working on the startup and stuff, is this something that you are concerned about, like planning too much and not acting, or do you think you have a good balance of it? Uh, yeah, the general advice is that like speed is extremely important in the startup game. Um, and that, yeah, over planning and over analyzing is, is definitely like a big killer. And like everyone says that like iteration speed is one of you know, one of the main differentiators between good teams that do well and you know teams that do less well and yeah i do we are we yeah i think now that this advice is just like extremely mainstream in the startup sphere and so we've kind of had a top of mind right right from the start um whereas i think a few years ago like before we were super into this you know in first year and stuff when lucas and i would work on projects it would definitely be a lot more like planning a lot more like analysis and like trying to get everything absolutely right rather than getting something out there and iterating and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I think this is advice that I need to take myself because initially when I started the YouTube thing, I I'd fully internalized all this, all this stuff about, you know, it's all about speed of execution. It's all about iteration. And that's how I churned out a ton of content over a short period of time. But now what I'm doing is I'm planning for this second YouTube channel. That's all about medical education and stuff. And I found myself kind of, I mean, I've been in planning mode for the last six months about this thing. Really? And I haven't released a single video. Why? Uh, because at this point, it now feels like, okay, I'm doing this. Therefore, from the start, I want, you know, the branding to be on point. I want there to be a nice intro. I want there to be a nice logo. I haven't got a logo yet. I haven't got an intro. There's all these things that I'm sort of barriers that I'm setting up. And I'm also sort of talking to various companies about potentially sponsoring different kinds of video series and stuff like that, which, which is all kind of, in hindsight, so so unnecessary and so pointless prior to actually getting something out there hmm. and so yeah i mean if i i think if i were treating it more like sort of a, a first venture then it would just be a lot more successful whereas for some reason i have in my mind that okay this is the next thing i'm doing i already have an existing audience therefore i have to do this one properly yeah 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 exactly and this sort of you know uh, analysis paralysis just like so many plans and ideas that and like i'm, I'm not actually doing any of them <laughs> so it's like the it's like the sort of expectation thing you know it's like when you almost like a sort of fixed mindset versus growth mindset thing where if you tell a kid oh you're really clever and stuff 
then they're really scared to do badly on like the, the next maths test because then, you know, they're not going to be clever anymore. And then that was like held dearly to them. And so in your head, it seems like it might be like, oh I'm man, really I'm, I'm, I'm really clever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like a legit YouTube guy now. Yeah. I, you know, the, I, need, I need to like have this super high bar or whatever, rather than go back to being like a newbie on a new channel. And like maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe it makes sense. So at this, uh, so a few, a few weeks ago, I went to Belfast for this YouTuber conference thing. And one of the biggest piece of advice that one of the main takeaways that I took from it was that, you know, they, they were talking about how when you have any level of success, you then start to raise the bar higher and higher and higher for things that you are allowed to do. Yeah. The quality of things that you have to produce. Yeah. Um, whereas at the start, you know, being a YouTuber is fun because you turn the camera on, you attach the microphone to the top of it and you just talk wherever you are. Yeah. Whereas now when I make a video, I, you know, I spend an, an hour literally setting up the lighting, setting up the microphone, setting up a double microphone setup, setting up an external microphone with an audio recorder. All of this stuff that adds so much friction to the process that... I don't know. I wonder how necessary it is really. Hmm. And what a lot of people comment is that, um, you know, they, uh, the video that they filmed just sitting on their bed with the camera pointing at them and no lighting setup at all, where they're just talking from the heart that does better and seems to resonate with more people than a fully legit studio setup where they've scripted the video and done everything, yeah. done everything like that. So I think there's definitely a, a balance there. And I think I've now gone too far on the side of, sort of wanting everything to be really highly produced and well thought out and stuff. Whereas actually speed of execution at this point is still really, really important. So what are you going to do about this? So action points. Um, going to get back to Cambridge today, finish filming my iPhone comparison camera video. And then, uh, right, this week, I'm going to release the first video for the new channel. Nice. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right. I actually have no free evenings this week, but oh well, <laughs> it's fine. I'll do it anyway. Yeah, you'll make time. Exactly. And that's another book I was going to do. It's called Make Time. <laughs> oh, of course it is. <laughs> anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this. Um, actually, one last thing. Uh, let's talk about goals. Okay. So there's the traditional idea in the self-help sphere is that set goals and you will succeed. Like that sort of thing. Okay. But then the counterpoint is now in the, in the whole startup scene is like, you know, screw goals, focus on systems. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sort of. Uh, wait, what, what, what do you mean? Yeah, sort of. I don't know. I mean, some people... Some people in the startup scene are all about goals and things. Others, like famously the Basecamp guys, Jason Fried and stuff, are like, no, I don't do goals. Where where do you stand on that front? Because I've I've kind of been very much indoctrinated into the Basecamp, Jason Fried mentality of I don't care about goals, I don't care about revenue metrics and, yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Whereas a lot of podcasts that I listen to about kind of growing your business and stuff is all about, you know, set, set a revenue goal for the year. Yeah. And I'm like, why on earth would you set a revenue goal for the year? But they say that, you know, set a revenue goal because then you know the sorts of things you should be working towards. Yeah. So what we've uh, this is something we've been thinking about for the past sort of couple of weeks uh, at the startup. And I think... I think goal, I think goals are helpful because whenever you need to make a decision about how to spend some resources, time or money, it's always with respect to what you're trying to achieve. And so even if you're not writing it down, you choosing to do, you know, make some video instead of, I don't know, hang out with your mates or whatever, like, even if you're not explicitly stating a goal, you're, it's sort of a, what's, what, what do economists say? It's like a revealed preference almost, <laughs> you know, it's a, like... Your, your your actions are because you want to like do do this thing. And so I think it's helpful to, especially on a team, to have a goal that like everyone can be on the same page on. And so like we now, we we sort of have a an immediate goal that we're trying to accomplish for the startup. And now everything we do is like, okay, will this help us get to this goal? And if it if it won't help us, then we won't do it. Like there are a million things we could, could be doing. 
they're all like kind of nice and kind of good but like having this concrete goal which we've written down means that every decision is now made with respect to that goal and i think that's i think that's really helpful and so i think goals are helpful on that level of like making it easier for you to make decisions uh it's almost like having sort of planning mode where you think about you know it, it comes back to my thing about the pilot and the plane of like you know you you set the direction of the plane and then you kind of execute on that and so you, you set this goal and you say okay you know this is this is the next thing we need to do and then everything you do is in service to that and so i think goals useful on that level and now that that's sort of like a high level goal but like week to week i think we've also been thinking about like setting goals and and my my thinking on this right now we haven't like you know we haven't like yeah set up like a proper system for this but my thinking is there are certain things that we enjoy doing more than other things and we know those things will get done and if anything we have a bias towards doing those things even if they're not the most useful thing to be doing um and so we don't need to worry about setting goals for like working on the product we love working on the product we love designing new features we love building features and getting feedback we love doing that kind of thing the thing that might fall by the wayside if we're not very intentional about it is like, you know, are we talking to enough potential customers every week? Are we talking to enough existing users every week and so on? And so I think setting goals around the things that would otherwise be might, otherwise might be forgotten is is what is sort of the way I'm thinking about goals at the moment. Ah. Oh, okay. Right. So I'm going to turn this back to me so I can get some advice from you on this front now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so one thing that I've really avoided having with the YouTube channel is any kind of goal for subscriber count. Um, because, if, for example, if I said to myself, you know, I'm setting the goal that I want to reach a million subscribers in the next 12 months, that would change the sort of stuff that I make. Yep. It would make me focus more on kind of trying to get the viral hits, more and more on producing content that will, quote, please the mainstream. Uh, I'd be spending less time on doing sort of niche medical educational stuff. Yeah. All of that. And so... But I know that, you know, growth is something that I want, but I just don't want, I, I don't know if I've just been indoctrinated by Basecamp too much. I, I feel like setting the goal would also reduce the enjoyment of the whole process. Whereas right now, what I, what I can tell myself is that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just making these videos for fun. And I like that is genuinely the thought process that goes, that goes through my head and everything else just happens as a side effect of that, which is a really enjoyable position to be in. But there's no like goal as such. Yeah, I mean, it depends... It depends what this thing means to you. Like, if you decided before you started the YouTube thing, I'm going to quit my job and, like, become a full-time creative, then it would be kind of stupid not to have goals because there's a lot riding on this. You know, you need this thing to start working pretty soon, right? Mm. Whereas for you, it seems like the YouTube thing is a nice thing on the side right now. You don't, like, yeah, you don't need any goals. Nothing's going to happen if you don't have any goals. I mean, I don't think this is going on with you, but there might be a risk of, of you doing the thing of, like, oh yeah, I, I, I wasn't trying anyway, or like, I didn't think it would work anyway. And so you doing this thing of like, oh yeah, it's just a fun thing or whatever. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not focused on like uh, the metrics or anything like that. It's just a fun thing. Might just be like a defense mechanism of like, you know, to to sort of feel good, even if like, I don't know, you're not getting getting sort of good outcomes from it or whatever. But I, I don't think that's actually what going, what's going on with you though, right? Like, you know, people like Matt DiVello, whatever, got to, I don't know, a million in like a year or something. Yeah. So like that kind of stuff is possible. And yeah, maybe the fact that you're not doing it. I, yeah, I, I think it probably is just because it's a fun thing for you and you, you don't want to like take it too seriously. Yeah. I think the main thing I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about is that I don't want it to feel like a job. 
And I feel like setting goals in that regard would make it feel like a job rather yeah. than something that, oh, I can, I can just do this whenever I feel like it. Yeah. Um, and I also really, really, really like your point about setting goals for the things that won't get done otherwise. So for example, I, I'm, I'm planning to run a series of like revision lectures for medical students and, and stuff like that. That requires sitting down, going through the whole syllabus and creating stuff. Yeah. Which is just like, it's fun, but it's just not as fun as making a random YouTube video that's, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so maybe I need to set the goals for doing the things that I otherwise know I probably wouldn't do, even though I know that long-term they're going to be very, very useful for me. Yeah. Uh, and also add some value to other people and, and all that stuff. Is this a novel piece of life advice framing that I've done? Uh, yeah. Have you, you haven't come across this in any of your books? Set, set goals for the things you don't want to do. Not really. I don't want to do, but like, yeah, that but, might you not know, happen. Or, or I might have done, but I've only come across it six times and this is the seventh time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is very interesting. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So no goals because... Uh, I think ultimately it just comes down to ask, asking ourselves, what are we optimizing for? Yeah, like, precisely. What, yeah. what is the point? Yeah. And yeah, working towards the things that we know are useful and trying, trying to make them fun. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think we should have a quick like, quick, like retrospective about this new format. Okay. How do you think it went? Um, I like the idea and I like that sort of we were, I was able to pick out quotes and you and I could talk about how they resonate with us or kind of give examples. Um, the Roger Bannister thing was, was an interesting snippet. I think sort of next time I wouldn't, I won't go through them kind of just in chronological order. I think yeah. there needs to be some kind of curation because I've got like sort of 50 highlights from this book. And I know that some of them are going to be more interesting than others. Um, yeah, I was thinking the same thing that like some, some of the, the bits led to interesting discussion whereas others didn't. And so if we just like sit down for like 15 minutes before the episode where we're doing this and we both just look through the list and be like, okay, that sounds good. I think I think I have some stuff to say about that. Uh, then that could be like significantly better. But I think the format, I think the format has legs. I think it could be good. It could be good. Yeah, I think so. Because one thing that I've been very cognizant of with this podcast is that it's, it, it is genuinely hard to kind of create something every week. Sort of a Gary, Gary would say document, don't create as like the easiest way to just yeah. make stuff. And given that there, there is this whole backlog of like hundreds of books with highlights and stuff that do make for good, for, for interesting reading and do make for interesting discussion, you know, on the days where it's not obvious that, oh, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this really interesting thing, thing that I want to talk about. Yeah. Then this is a good format to yeah. default to in for, for, for some weeks, just like Q and A is a good format to default to sometimes as like a sort of just giving more options for keeping this thing sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I think it could work. It'll be interesting to hear listeners' thoughts. Yeah. Do email us at hi at notoverthinking.com. Yes, I now have access to the email account, so I've started replying to replying to emails. Very good. On on the email note, so I have found myself sort of in the last year or so doing the thing of replying to emails as if they're text messages. Mm. <laughs> like someone will send me a whole long ass thing and I will just, I, will, I won't even say hi, Tom, yeah. because I will, I will just give them like the one or two liner response. Yeah. But I'm not sure if that comes across as cold or something. <laughs> I think it does. And I think the the real tragedy and paradox of like emails is that the longer the more the more effort the other person puts into the email, like the longer their email is, the longer your email has to be as a result. Almost like to show that you care and that you've read their thing and like, you know, mm. to give like a proportionate response. Mm. But that means you're going to have to spend some time on this thing. Yeah. And so that means like the really short emails are the ones that get answered. Yeah. yeah the short emails where like, the other person hasn't put in that exactly. much effort or whatever. Like, yeah, which really... iPad pro size do you have? 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And like the people who put in like a 3000 word essay being like explaining the, the circumstances and all the stuff that went on with the family and how they're doing this and that mm. university that requires some kind of answer. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's a real like injustice. And I someone tweeted about this recently, not recently, but like, yeah, yeah, we should be better with emails. But now that you have access to the account, you can actually reply to some. Yes. Um, but yeah, I hope people don't mind if I do the <laughs> SMS message reply type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because the thing is with it, often with a lot of long ones, I feel like a pressure, I feel a pressure to reply something long. Mm. Even if most of that isn't substance, the pressure comes from just wanting to show that like I have put effort in and I care and have like thought about this thing. Yeah. You know, and especially for the emails that we sort of get, we get on the podcast, often there's no like question attached to them. It's just people's thoughts about, you know, what it means to be authentic, which is like four paragraphs long. And it's like, yeah, this is a really good thought. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Cool Cool. story, bro. Yeah. (laughs) It feels like you're saying cool story, bro. If you, if you, if you you just be like, be like, wow, thanks a lot. You know, whatever. Yeah. And so in order to not seem dismissive, (laughs) you know, you have to like pat it out. Um, yeah then padding out takes like far too much time especially given the amount of well emails and therefore no one gets a response mm. so it's this constant balance of <laughs> yeah managing resources but reading them is really easy and we've read every single one yeah and they're, and they're great so yeah. keep keep doing that <laughs> thanks a lot in fact it's, it's it's even easier to read it if you if you leave a positive review on the on the, on the itunes store <laughs> um and on that note thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next week Bye bye